Welcome to episode number 31 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we remember gliding legend Ingo Renner, who has died at the age of 81. We chat with fellow pilot and friend Bernard Ecke. Tow pilot emergency. We hear from the Pawnee pilot who had the wherewithal to figure out what to do when the control stick separated in flight. And a new take on an age-old problem, training and retaining glider pilots. We find out about the QNIM Gliding Club's objective-orientated training program. That's all on episode number 31 of The Thermal. Ingo Renner, a remarkable contest and record-setting glider pilot, has died at the age of 81. He won the World Gliding Championships a total of four times, won 19 Australian National Gliding Championships, and held multiple records, including the two-seat world distance record and a single-seat speed record over a 10-kilometer triangle. The impact his career and personality had on the Australian and international gliding community cannot be understated. Bernard Ecke, glider pilot and author of Advanced Sorry Made Easy, knew Ingo Renner well. I've reached Bernard at his home in Adelaide, South Australia. Hello, Bernard. Thanks for coming on to chat about Ingo. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Harry. Now, Ingo is somebody you knew well. How, how will you remember him? I would say he was a quiet achiever and a man with absolutely total dedication to our sport. Mm -hmm. uh, he always did his best to stay away from the limelight and he was always very quietly spoken and modest. Uh, there was nothing Ingo didn't know about gliding. But what made him really popular were his uh, humble manners and his willingness to share his vast experience with others. Right. And to me, it came as no surprise that he was later asked to coach uh, several Australian national teams in preparation for world championships. Mm -hmm. But as a competition pilot himself, I mean, he won four world championships. Yes, he did. Uh, well, uh, not only did he win four world championships, I think he always uh, also won around 20 national titles and countless regional championships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He also set a number of world records. Uh, the most spectacular one was set in the early 80s, I believe, when he did almost 200 kilometers per hour over a 100 kilometer FAI triangle. Wow. Mind you, that wasn't in wave, but in convective conditions. Huh. And for all these accomplishments, he was inducted in the Australian Aviation Hall of Fame. And I believe in the late 80s, he was also awarded the Medal of Order of Australia for services to gliding. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's hard to recall all of his achievements. Well, and it's a very, accolades. very long list. Uh, I've I've been looking online, yeah. and it's it's incredible. And I've there are also it's... wonderful stories. There was one story of somebody who went up with him in a Blanick, and then they quickly knocked off a five hundred kilometer flight. <laughs> 
Yes. Uh, uh, look, Ingo had the habit of flying to national championships from Torquemore. <laughs> he hardly ever he hardly ever had a had a trailer with him when he went to these uh, nationals. <laughs> from your point of view, what made him such a remarkable pilot? What was it about his skill set? What made him such a remarkable pilot? Uh, there is quite a number of reasons, of course, but undoubtedly he was a very gifted natural pilot with an almost uncanny ability to find the strongest lift around. Mm -hmm. I think that his incredible talent for feeling the air and his huge number of gliding hours gave him such a clear edge over all his competitors. Uh, I flew with him and I saw that he regards the aircraft as an extension of his own body. Hmm. He acted instinctively on the slightest movement of his glider. And when we flew together in my ASH-25, I always let him do most of the flying. That's because I wanted to learn from the master and I was hoping to steal with my eyes. And Often, was, that, just, was that successful? Did you, what did you learn? What did I learn? <laughs> I just learned that this man um, doesn't need to think about it anymore. <laughs> he just acts on, on the slightest uh, air movement. And I can remember that I often sat there and shook my head in disbelief. On a blue day, he would regularly go significantly off track and catch a thermal that was about a full kilometer away. Just mind-boggling and almost supernatural. He, he sounds more and like a bird than a human. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there is a story around where one student once asked him, Hey, Ingo, why did you suddenly turn right here? And he would just say, because that's where the thermal is. <laughs> <laughs> that might sound funny, but you could be forgiven for thinking that Ingo was holding back with his winning formula. But mm. far from it. He just acted on his gut feeling. And most of it, most of the time, I would say, it served him well. Now, I, I read he had something like 37,000 thousand hours in the air so that that would obviously give him some knowledge of of the air that most of us can't even achieve quite right yes i mean he not only flew in australia but he also went to germany for decades mm -hmm. to uh, teach other people to fly in the uh, biggest gliding school in, in Europe. That was Erlinghausen. By the way, I learned to fly at the same airfield there. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and because he, he uh, not only acted as an instructor, but that flying school also had outposts in, in the Italian Alps and in Spain, and uh, school management asked him to run these outposts hmm. and, uh, and he was doing coaching at the same time and that's why he logged around uh, a thousand gliding hours every year wow and yeah i think you're right well he also uh, had the end in the end yeah. he had the endless summer Sorry. so i guess he would fly in australia and then go north 
Yeah, he had two summers every year, and that's why he had uh, well over 35,000 hours mm. in his logbook. Mm -mm. Now, Bernard, what can you tell me about his background? I understand that just like you, Ingo was a German immigrant to Australia and, and picked up his, his gliding there again? Yes, that's right. He, uh, he had a very difficult start, I believe, when he first migrated to Australia. And I think he was in his early 20s then. Mm -hmm. uh, he apparently worked for a shipyard in Queensland for a number of years. But then he made use of his German instructor rating and worked for the Soaring Center at Torquemwall. Right. Uh, in comparison, my migration to Australia was very easy because my German employer wanted me to start up a subsidiary here and paid for all the expenses involved. Um, anyway, Ingo came to Australia uh, and became a citizen in the early 70s, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, and then he, he um, went forwards and backwards between um, Australia and uh, Europe uh, for at least 20 years. But at that point, he was able to turn gliding into his full-time job, essentially. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. The moment he, he moved to, to uh, Torquemwall, uh, he um, was instructing virtually every day there. And, um, yeah, th that's, that accounted for his huge number of gliding hours. Now, he was also somebody, I understand, who really gave back to the gliding community. It wasn't always coaching or making money, but he really gave back. Is, is, was that your opinion as well? Oh, most definitely, Harry. He, he not only taught countless people to fly, but he was also very, very generous when it comes to giving time and advice to his fellow pilots. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. When I finished the manuscript of Advanced Soaring Made Easy, I asked him to check it for me. He then thoroughly reviewed the entire book, and I'm very happy to admit that his input helped greatly to turn it into such a bestseller. Hmm. But around the same time, I was the head coach for South Australia. And when I asked him to give me a hand at our annual coaching week at Wakery, he immediately agreed. Then he drove 700 kilometers to join us. And all he ever asked for was a two-seater uh, for coaching and some basic accommodation. Huh. Unbelievable. Of course, we welcome this very generous in, and inspirational man with open arms. Now, I, I had the pleasure of meeting him once many years ago in around 2006. I was in Tokenwall on a, on a trip to Australia, and he actually gave me a check ride. And I remember being quite in, in awe that I was getting a, a check ride by this, by this man, this world champion. And uh, he was very low-key and just a, a really nice man. Yeah, the, the most modest man you can possibly think of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, finally, Bernard, what, what kind of influence did he have on your own flying? Did, did he and his experience push you to fly harder? Did you strive to, to be more like him? What, how, how did he influence your own flying? Uh, I think he had a massive uh, influence uh, on my uh, flying. 
I only shared the cockpit with him, oh, say, three or four times. But uh, we had an exchange of ideas and opinions, and that influenced my own flying greatly. Mm -hmm. um, he never managed to turn me into a competition pilot, but he gave <laughs> me an awful lot to think about. Right. I'm sure uh, that also applies to a large number of other pilots in Australia and around the world, for that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, his impact on the Australian and European gliding scene was huge. And I feel that his uh, loss will be felt for many years to come. Right. I, I understand Ingo had his last flight only about two months ago, but uh, he passed away last Saturday, and he only made it to 81. Right. Well, Bernardo, I'm, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend. Uh, he will obviously be, be greatly missed, and thank you so much for telling us about Ingo's life and his great influence in, uh, in the world of gliding. No problem, Harry. Thank you for having me on your program again. Always okay. a pleasure. We will talk again, Bernard. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bernard Ecke spoke to me from Adelaide, South Australia. Here's Bob Peary reading his poem, Final Glide. The clouds they are dispersing, the sun is sinking west. The vario reminds me that the day has passed its best. I've soared and scraped and scud run using thermal, wave and coast, but now the time's arrived for me to make that last approach. My smoothest landing ever. Old familiar faces loom to guide me across the track to the hangar through the gloom. All is still and quiet while the slumbering gliders snore, but reverie is broken as they shut the hangar door. Alone now in the darkness, I reflect upon the joy that gliding has provided since I was just a boy. The dark gets even blacker as I shuffle past the fleet, avoiding fragile wingtips with my slowly chilling feet. And then I'm attracted by a piercing shaft of light which leads me through the back doors to a quite amazing sight. The sun is shining brightly. Where has the darkness gone? The cumulus is building. High time that I was gone. A gleaming bird awaits me, a whispering tug alongside. Up slack, all out, requested. Then I start my final glide. There's an angel off my wingtip who points the way we'll fly. Then we soar and climb together to that goal beyond the sky. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the CUNAM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots. And it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. Philip Anderson is an extremely experienced pilot. He's ex-U.S. Air Force, where he flew everything from T-38s to B-52s. He then went on to a commercial flying career flying large aluminum cans like the DC-8 and DC-10. 
but for the last 20 years or so, he's been flying the tow planes at Evergreen Soaring in Washington State. But with all that flying experience, nothing had really prepared him for what happened while flying a Pawnee tow plane out of Twisp Municipal Airport in June of 2021. It was a flight that could easily have ended in disaster. I've reached Phil at his home in Cedro Woolley, Washington State. Hello, Phil. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, I'm a Pawnee pilot as well. This story terrifies me. Set the scene for me. You're, you're in the Pawnee tow plane. You've got a glider on tow. When did you start to realize something was going wrong? Um, the uh, aileron, the sticks uh, controlling the aileron was becoming very, very, very loose, extremely loose, where I would uh, move the stick and there was no, no control with the ailerons. And that was the beginning of it as I was headed north. Yeah. <laughs> what did you, when you started noticing that, what's going through your brain? Are you thinking, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, that, that was mostly what in the world, um, the, on the toe before, the stick had become uh, very sloppy. And uh, when I had landed after that last, after the last toe, I had, um, you can, as you well know, you can look down on the Pawnee, you can see the control cables for the ailerons. Mm-hmm. And I moved the stick back and forth, and the control cables looked good. They weren't sloppy or loose, and the ailerons were moving. I did a full uh, roundhouse with the stick, and I yanked it up and down, and uh, it seemed seemed like it was working. It had it had been uh, loose, and so I thought, well, it must be an adjustment on a Pawnee. I'm not I'm not an AMP, so right. just just a pilot. <laughs> And uh, I'm just figuring there's adjustment on it. And I'm going to have, we had an AMP there who was actually in the air at that time. And I would, uh, when we got done, just say, hey, there's something wrong here. And I, I figured it just, you know, an adjustment had come loose or something. But flash forward, you're now, you got another glider on tow and it's happening again. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and by this time, what went through my mind, if I, as soon as I get back to Twist, that's my last toe. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was, it was really becoming uh, where I had very little control with uh, lateral control with the stick. And, and so what happened? You've still got the glider and, on toe. Take me through yeah, the Yeah, and then I made, a, I made a right-hand turn um, towards uh, Polpec. All of a sudden, the entire stick came out in my hand. Stick. I'm sorry. I'm going to stop there for a sec. You just said the stick came out in your hand. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Came uh, came out disconnected. I was in my hand completely. It was disconnected from the aircraft. I I can't imagine how I would react if I was flying a Pawnee and that happened. What what was your initial reaction once you've the, the stick is no longer connected to the to the system? Yeah, it was, I just had it in my hand, and uh, uh, and I go, oh crap, this is not good. <laughs> um, to say the least. I should go back and and also mention the fact that um, over the years, I've always thought, what happens if I lost ailerons? Could I still control the aircraft? And uh, so I had practiced oh many times using just rudder, you know, to for lateral control. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't. You know, I wasn't unfamiliar with being able to do that. So I wasn't really uh, too concerned. The first thing I did was uh, tell a tow pilot over the radio, I said, I've got a problem. And I need or to the glider pilot. Tow. 
The glider pilot, yes. Right. I need you to, um, I have a problem and I need you to get off tow. Mm-hmm. And he acknowledged and I actually, I watched him uh, till he was well clear. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so then, at that point, there, I'm right over a, a valley that went down uh, into another valley and back towards Twist. And so I kicked the rudder and uh, reduced the power and, and the airplane just responded um, really nice. It made a nice uh, left-hand turn and began a nice descent. I go, hmm, maybe this is not going to be as bad as I thought. And, and what about pitch control? See, that's the thing that would terrify me, not having any elevator control. Well, I was using power mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, it's amazing. Um, that's that's what uh, brought my confidence back up because... As soon as I reduced the power, the nose dropped, you know, I, I didn't pull it to idle. I just pulled, you know, a couple RPM off of it, three or 400 RPM, maybe something like that. And the nose just dropped uh, gently huh. down towards the valley. Yeah. And uh, at that time, then I made another, and I just kept a, a steady descent and uh, continued on in my left turn down towards through the valley. And back, heading back towards the airport, I assume. Toward, yeah, towards Twist. And uh, uh, I had uh, towed a uh, our AMP that was, uh, he was also a glider pilot, but he's AMP and worked on our Pawnees. And uh, he, he was airborne, and I called him and told him, I said, hey, the stick just came <laughs> disconnected. And did he have any suggestions? <laughs> yeah, yeah. God. And actually, he you were talking pitch control. He said, well, does your trim work? You know, And so I tried the trim, and the trim did work. So uh, I did have some, I had some control with uh, elevator with the trim. And, and just to clarify here, you're, you know, some tow pilots wear parachutes. I'm assuming that's not an option. You're not wearing a parachute. No, no. Yeah, we don't have parachute on, on the Pawnee. So you're basically going where the Pawnee's going. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Somebody, I had a friend of mine ask me, well, did you have the option to jump out? And I said, oh, yeah, I could have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, oh. uh, God. Okay, but, so but, uh, my hands are getting sweaty just thinking about this. But so you're, you're now heading back towards the airfield. You're using trim and power to adjust um, your descent and then using rudder, I guess, to... Right. Yeah using rudder for lateral control. And as I'm coming down the valley, there was some, uh, oh, those circular um, hay fields uh, or green, you know, green uh, hay fields. I know what you mean. The irrigation makes them circular. Irrigation, yes, circular there. And I actually considered uh, putting the Pawnee down there because my concern was really, at that point, was I, I wasn't really quite sure how the landing was going to come out. And so, uh, but then, as I'm going along and I worked with the power, and I had, uh, my altitudes were uh, coming out just right, and the lateral control with the rudder was working fine. So I thought, shoot, I might as well try and, and um, get it back to twist anyway, rather than land it, you know, out off the airfield. Right, and you also don't know what kind of landing it's going to be, and that way there are people around. 
my plan was to uh, set up a very long straight-in glide and uh, to, to set up um, so that my aim point, you know, I would come over the field at the right aim point and, and then just uh, roll the trim up as I pull the power off. I was trying to figure out um, how to, to move, you know, to run the power and the trim all at the same time with one hand, which is all in the same, you know, in the same uh, spot with the Pawnee. Right, on the left-hand side of the cockpit. Meanwhile, well, the, yeah, on the left, yeah. And, and what about the stick? Is it just lying on the cockpit floor? Do you have it squeezed between I, your knees? What are you doing? Oh, I'm still holding it, trying to trying to fly with it. <laughs> God. I'm still holding it. So, it and that just you know it had it the mic switch was still working, so I had made several radio calls. I had an emergency coming in, and that sort that sort of thing. Did Did you have any time to be scared? Were you scared at all, or just too busy? Actually, I I really wasn't. Uh, what everybody asked me the same thing. Did you know? Did I really? The only point that I was really scared was coming down the, the valley there, and I'm trying to think how I'm going to get this thing on the ground. But the more I flew it, the more confident I came with. Uh, I became with the aircraft, you know, using just the using it with the experience of using power and right. and using the rudder. And I mean, it was it was completely controllable. I had a, I could adjust my descent. Um, I have lost uh, airspeed before, so. Um, I knew what power settings to use and so forth. And so on the final, that I just figured it was, I really had, uh, I was, really felt confident the whole thing was going to come out fine. Hmm. I was still trying to figure out, as I'm descending, as to how I'm going to actually flare the airplane. And um, Right, which is a major component and, of landing a tail dragger like that, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's just a bit, That's yeah. Exactly right. And as I came, so I made the adjustment, and uh, then I cleared the house fine, and I thought things were going okay, and I pulled the power off. Big mistake I probably made there was pulling the power completely off, um, because then the aircraft started drifting to the right, and I had picked the grass because I thought it was, you know, really wide, but I didn't know that once you get off the actual grass part of it, it's still grass, but it's got a whole bunch of real big berms in it. Mm. And I had full left rudder. Um, nothing I could, I could do was to uh, correct the, the drift to the right. But are you, are you touched, actually, have you touched point, down at this point? Um, not quite. Okay. Uh, it, was, it went real quick. Yeah, I, I did touch down, and it was uh, firm, but not too bad. But it was still drifting to the right. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, I didn't know that there were berms on the, off the runway. I wasn't concerned about it until I hit one and it broke off the right gear. Okay. okay. And uh, it was at that point I realized I'm an unpaid passenger at that point. Right, right. So you're going along, prop strike. What, what happened after that? Yeah, what happened was the right wing dropped, and then it turned uh, 90 degrees uh, to the runway, and, of course, then the left gear uh, then broke off. Mm -hmm. So, And that came to a sudden a stop very shortly thereafter. Right. But you did it. You're on the ground. You're in one piece, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I was a little ticked off because I I was still upset at myself. I, I really thought it was going to work out fine. And, um, I hate destroying an airplane uh, that the club has been nice enough to let me fly. So I, yeah, but... at that point I was sitting there, I was re- I really kind of ticked off at myself that that, um, that it didn't work out better than it should have. Well, I think it's still personally very remarkable that you were able to put this aircraft back on the ground and survive with, you know, a stick that's floating around the cockpit. Yeah. Yeah, that's, everybody's come up to me and said the same thing. But you, you still, you go back in your mind, of course, you don't have a do-over. So, no. But you go back in your mind and say, you know, I wish I'd have done this or this or this. So. You're you're getting out of the airplane. Um you must be relieved at this point. Yeah, actually, um, with just a bump on the head, um, it, it put a cut, a little bit of blood. That was it. Um, I got out, and um, by this time, the AMP that was uh, in his glider had come overhead and uh, came over to see if I was okay. And they'd already uh, called 911 that uh, the meat wagon was there to yeah. meet me. Yeah. But uh, I... I um, strapped myself in very tight so wherever the seat goes in the Pawnee is where I'm going to go and uh, all I all I did was get the scratch on the head had I locked the had I locked my um, shoulder harness of course I would have come out okay now the the Pawnee isn't going to be repairable no no it was written off okay well it's already gone unfortunately okay well small price to pay for you know being able to bring it back safely and you for you to be able to walk away yeah <laughs> didn't even get a scratch i think i'm gonna get a tattoo because i didn't even get a scratch on my forehead or anything phil before i let you go do you have any advice for me the next time i get in the pawnee what am i going to check what do i actually have to look at the connection at the knuckle there where the stick and the aileron and the yeah it it's it's called a, a roll cradle and um Apparently, uh, we uh, checked our Pawnee, and uh, there's supposed to be a bolt and a nut on it with a um, cotter pin that goes through there. Mm -hmm. And um, so people climbing in and out of the Pawnee, including myself, I suppose, hit that bolt. And and, uh, because on one of our other Pawnees, the uh, cotter pin was half broken off. And... uh, so I put the word, or the word has been put out, you know, to check the Pawnees for the that bolt there. Yeah. Um, but the only thing I would recommend is <laughs> that you occasionally at least look and make sure the bolt and the Carter pin is in in the stick there. Well, I tell you, at my the, club, the bolts the stick to that rail, the uh, roll, uh, the roll cradle. Well, we're going to make that part of our daily inspection on that aircraft from now on, and. Uh, who knows, maybe yeah. by doing these interviews and letting people know, you may have inadvertently saved some tow pilot's life somewhere. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, um, that's the only thing I, the only thing I would say is, and the only other thing I would say is, I guess, um, lock your shoulder harness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, you have a, if you have a problem, lock the shoulder harness, yeah. shoulder harness. Because the the cockpit itself is is designed to take a lot of G's, yeah. and uh, I, people have sent me pictures. Um, I think was that you? Somebody sent me um, a video of an airplane, a Pawnee that 
crashed, and the only thing that was left was the cockpit. Wow. So. Well, that's reassuring to know. Hopefully, uh, we'll never find out. So that's where I'm going to yeah. knock on wood. Phil, thank you so much. And for the, other th the only other thing I would say yeah. is that if you have a control problem, get out. You know, don't take off again until you, until you find out exactly what's wrong with it. Right. If your spidey sense goes off, listen to it. Yeah, exactly. Huh. <laughs> well, Phil, it's been a, it's a remarkable story. Thank you so much for telling it to us. And uh, I'm so glad you, sure. uh, you're all right and it, it all worked out. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye. Phil Anderson is one very lucky tow plane pilot. He spoke to me from Cedro Woolley, Washington State. What do most of the record-breaking pilots you hear on the thermal have in common? Almost all of them use SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more about how this weather app works, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven. For listeners of the thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying, or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. Training and retaining new glider pilots is a problem that's as old as gliding. The QNM Gliding Club in Alberta, Canada has taken on a new approach that they're calling objective-orientated training, and it seems to be working. OOT is an initiative of instructor Patrick McMahon, who is also one of the brains behind the very successful and internationally recognized Proving Grounds cross-country training program. I've reached Patrick at home in Calgary. Hello, Patrick. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. So training and retaining students is a problem that every club faces. I mean, it's something that at, at my gliding club every year it comes up and every year somebody thinks they have a solution and nothing ever works. What is your objective orientated training or OOT? How does it work? Yeah, this is really a strategy that we've implemented a couple of years ago at the QNM Gliding Club. Um, really to try to address this recruitment issue. And what we've decided to do is create a, a package for students to pre-purchase a number of flights. And the thinking here is that if um, what we really need for recruitment to be successful is for people to stay. And so with the OOT package, you buy all these flights, um, you need to use them in the existing flying year, the current flying year, or else they expire. Um, and that forces students to fly a lot. And with a lot of flying comes outcomes and mm -hmm. outcomes come tension. But, but you're also not just, you know, at my club, essentially, you walk in, you sign up, you can become a student and learn how to glide. But you guys are, are managing this very tightly, aren't you? Well, yeah, so we um, we certainly saw a peak in interest um, that coincided with the introduction of this training program at the start of COVID. I think there was a lot of stay at home and looking for kind of adventures that you could do within the COVID constraints. Um, and we recognize that, uh, for instance, if the common package that students are buying is a 40 flight package and if 10 students bought it, that's, you know, we've committed ourselves to 400 flights and we need to be able to honor that commitment. Um, so the club actually made a decision the first year we implemented it to only allow um, 10 students in to make sure that we could have, 
Oh, That's, boy. That sounds like the dog I met last summer at the Cowley oh. Wave Camp. Yes. <laughs> it sure is. Sounds like an Amazon driver says there. Can you sit down, please? Or, uh, so, yeah, part of our thinking was that we needed to be able to honor our commitment and our side of the bargain. Um, so we set a limit of how many students we'd accept around this flight count that we could provide. The gliding club that we're flying at is, you know, we're lucky to do a thousand flights a year. So, right. So, for, 400 for, flights for 10 students is a big commitment. Exactly. Yeah. And this has created a different kind of downstream problem is that as interest has remained high, so has our wait list gotten long. Mm -hmm. Good good problem to have. But you're also then making sure that when you take on these 10 people, you're really doing your best to get them through to, you know, solo licensed onto cross country. Yeah, that's that's quite right. And I, I don't know if it's any different than what you'd expect or hope for a member, as you described, walking onto the field. Um, we, with the organization of this OOT package, there's kind of levers inside of it to, um, to encourage them to do a lot of flying and to get those outcomes, but it's still, we're not scheduling them to come out. They can come out at their own time, but they just know that they've really got to get through these, the flight count, mm -hmm. um, to get their money's worth. Um, so the way the club kind of looks at it is we either have a student that uses all their flights and gets an outcome and comes back and becomes a long-term member or we sell an OOT package to a student that really doesn't care too much about it, that doesn't come out. And in that case, they become kind of on a high margin customer for the year. Um, so because you know very well how much time and effort is put into the students from the instructor cadre. Sure, it's um, a big so, investment. Exactly. So we feel like this is a, a good balance. And what's really, I think, one of the benefits is it's really easy to communicate. So instead of like, as you and I know, a soaring association of Canada membership, like a, a basic membership, a flying membership block time, it's super confusing, I think, on the pricing of this. And with OOT, we just say, come in, whatever the number is, $2,400, this many flights, um, fly as many as you can. And, and we think that um, outcomes will be a consequence of flying a lot. And then outcomes also turn into um, leading into the next. I've gone solo now. I want my license. I've mm -hmm. got my license. I want to go cross country. And then you're and then you're hooked. So, how many seasons have you been running with this program now? I guess it's the second full season was a 2021 flying season. And and how has it been working out? Exceptionally well. So our you know, stated hope for students that were progressing would be that in their first year, they would get solo. Um, in 2021, we had, we kind of cleared part of our wait list and onboarded eight students at the start of the year. Mm -hmm. And this year we generated five licenses, which is a little bit of spillover from last year, but I think that's four students from this year's group that went solo and licensed in the year. And I don't think QNIM has five new licenses in the 10 years prior to 2021. Hmm. Now, are you also trying to have these students apply to become pilots? Like, do you sift through who you think are going to be the strongest candidates? So managing the, the student interest list has become this new problem. Like uh, going into 2022, we currently have 35 names on our list for 10 spots available in 2022. And this has created a new challenge um, in how we bring people into the club in the sport. Um, it's really important to have a good community. So when members can bring their friends in or family members, that's important. 
do we or do we not prioritize existing flying experience? These are conversations that are taking place within the organization mm -hmm. as we manage the alternative challenge that we've had from the past years, which is um, what appears to be overwhelming interest. And it's you know it's we really want to serve as many of these students as we can. So our but our still be able to do still be able to off. provide them with what they need, right? The right number of arrow toes and inst instruction, all that stuff, right? Exactly. So we're working hard to build up our instructor capacity, and then we would look to consider additional training aircraft. But the constraint we're trying to manage the club within the constraints that we have. But mm -hmm. the, it's certainly a different. Uh, anecdote that we're having with the interest relative to what we're hearing from some other gliding clubs. Is it going to get to the point where you're going to ask people for essays? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you don't want to jack up the price, but you want to get students that are going to turn into longtime members that are going to give back to the club. So I guess it's going to be a, an interesting way of, of, of filtering through the, the 35 candidates. Yeah, I, I expect that this year we'll mostly go through on a first come first serve basis and honor those that have been waiting and and i think that you know the disinterested might um uh find themselves off that list by their own mm -hmm. right um but uh yeah maybe the third time i'm on the podcast area i can talk to you about how <laughs> there's a triage approach to um to managing the interest but uh but yeah i think you know that's that is the challenge that that we struggle with is um is prioritizing like is is number in line they added one of the individuals that's close to the top of the list for 2022 is a hpl guy flying in the arctic and he's got a whole bunch of aviation experience and he was going to be home for six weeks through the summer and he was like emailing me every other day to find out where his status was on the list and um and it's like that's an obvious like that's a member that we'd love to have mm -hmm. and we want all of people like you know you you know gliding clubs like it's their open for anybody that's interested, um, it is a different um, experience we're having right now with the level of interest. But but it is an interesting concept where if you have enough people that want to come to fly or learn how to fly, and so many of them drop off and disappear, but if you start interviewing them ahead of time and, and making sure that you've got high caliber candidates that want to come in from the get-go instead of somebody that's trying it for a partial lark and has money in the bank, it, it it's probably a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, I like I, I think I would like I, I definitely agree with that sentiment, but I I'd also say that when I look at my the friends I've had at gliding clubs over the past I guess twenty years or nearly twenty years that I've been doing this, um, the members that have some money and that like to show up in our lark, you know, those are great members too. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um you know, you definitely want people that, that can be successful for themselves and support the success of the organization. I don't have any idea what the right way to um to vet that is at this point mm -hmm. um and yeah this is a really unique experience like presuming it, everyone on this list is genuinely interested like we don't have student capacity until 2026 right wow but it's working for you guys which is good yeah i think the, the headlines are that we're getting outcomes we're getting solos we're getting licenses we're building the interest the students are genuinely interested and have a culture of coming out and flying as much as they can, which I certainly hope will carry through their years of membership. They're not going to come out and maybe or maybe not take a launch, but they just will take a launch. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, I think it's it's good for it's good for the instructors because we're working through a volume of students, so that's giving them great experience. It's working for the tow pilots, um, so yeah, it's it's been I think 
I would definitely encourage other gliding clubs to evaluate this. I know the Edmonton Soaring Club is, has implemented something similar to this uh, this past season, but it's 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 a, a really great way to for, and also puts the money in the bank. These are all prepaid packages, so right, right. Instead, you know, we put the money in the bank at the start of the season, and uh, and then and then redeem these flights uh, through the season. So yeah. It's, so it's if other working. gliding clubs are interested in this, um, do they just email? the QNAM gliding club and ask for more information and on OOT and how you guys manage it. Oh yeah, they could uh, certainly learn a little bit about it. We've got some information on our website at QNM.org under the learn to fly um, menu item. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a link within that site to my email address, which is P McMahon at QNAM.org. So P M C M A H O N at QNAM.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we'd be happy to share um, the kind of general framework here. One of the other pieces just in our, in our training program is that we do a introduction to soaring seminar, like a three evening, just the nuts and bolts about what the sport is not to replace ground school. And then we're trying to, but COVID's prevented this from having a barbecue on the first Saturday of the month for May, June, and July, which is really to enhance the membership experience as right. well as showcase the, the members. Although this isn't a problem that we, yeah. Uh, that, really that's have. a separate part. Um, I mean, I agree. Very important to have a, a really good club culture. And it just doesn't happen organically. You've got to work at it. Yeah, for sure. And then I, yeah, exactly. So when we didn't, when we, you know, initially launched this, we didn't have the wait list that we do. Um, so this was part of the strategy to build a wait list. So we're managing a bit of a different problem uh, now or a different opportunity, I should say, uh, around how to uh, manage the interest from um, generated. Now, gliding clubs, are often afraid of change. How did you manage to sell the the concept of OOT to your board and, and I guess to the membership? Um, yeah, I think it wasn't, it was a little bit difficult until it became clear that this is not a discount in any way. It's just a repackaging of prices. Um, so it did, it did take a lot of words and charts to showcase that, but um, the the flights, there's a membership fee. The flights are a little bit more expensive than a per launch um, cost would otherwise be. But our club does a block time model, and they're not doing block time in this model. Mm-hmm. But block time incentivizes duration flights and training. We need we need takeoffs and landings for people to get outcomes. Um, so ultimately, this is not a discount. It's just a repackaging. And so once the club board and the members uh, really understood that, um, it was it was worth a shot, and then it's really kind of starts to be difficult to argue with um, with enthusiasm and the results that it's generating. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, listen, Patrick, always a pleasure chatting with you. Um, thanks for telling me or telling the the listeners and all of us about OOT. I'm going to bring it up to my club and let my CFI know as well. Um, anyway, thanks. Uh, stay safe during the winter, and we'll talk again soon. Always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, it was good to meet you at Cali this year. And I look forward to seeing you on this side of the country in months and years to come. Yeah, I'm looking forward to moving out west. All right, Patrick, take care. All the best. Cheers, Pipe. Bye-bye. Patrick McMahon spoke to me from Calgary, Alberta. That's it for episode number 31 of The Thermal. Many of us in the Northern Hemisphere are looking forward to another gliding season as the snow melts and the first spring thermals start to kick off. 
That said, our gliding friends in Ukraine have other things on their minds as they try to fend off a brutal Russian invasion. It's a terrible situation that's only getting worse. On the next episode of The Thermal, I will attempt to speak with our Ukrainian gliding colleagues to get the latest. Finally, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe. <laughs>